and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Really good again to be in church this morning. Um, I'm glad to be continuing this series on guardrails. Um, and if you haven't been here this, you know, in some of our past lessons, um, you picked a good day to come. We're going to talk about something that I think is hugely important to the church, but I think that's uh, very misunderstood. We kind of talked about another area that was kind of misunderstood last week, and um, all of those lessons you can find on our, our, our church website. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a link there for the podcast and that kind of thing. Um, if you're ever having trouble falling asleep, uh, we'll, we'll put you to sleep. That's, that's our guarantee. But uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here again this morning. You'll have to forgive my voice. You can hear it's a little bit kind of raspy a little bit on the edge of, of going on the fritz. Um, so I'm hoping it'll hang out uh, for the rest of this message for the next two hours, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what happens after that. Uh, that's a joke. Everybody all right this morning? All right. Anybody on this side awake? All right. Good. Anybody in the middle here? All right. All right. Here we go. So we're talking about guardrails, and what are guardrails? And just in case you've kind of ever wondered what like the official definition of a guardrail is, it's a system, which I really like that, and that's because I'm a oh, thank you. You're so kind. Read Mark 941. Somebody's upset in the lobby. Whose kid was that that made an adult yell? Talk amongst yourselves. Nothing so awkward as having people watch you drink water. I just knew it was going to dribble down my lip. Like your goals and focus in life really narrow when people are watching you drink water. But a guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into danger or off-limit areas. And we've kind of talked about this the last few weeks, just kind of reviewing some of the big ideas of why we're talking about guardrails. Guardrails really serve two purposes. They both direct and they protect us as we drive down the highway of life. And here's another thing that we need to know about guardrails is that guardrails are actually placed inside the safety zone. The guardrail isn't out over the cliff. It's actually on the road where there's still a little bit of road there for you to drive on, but it's there to keep you safe, and so they're placed inside the safety zone. And then, of course, guardrails are designed to minimize damage. That if you hit a guardrail with your car, you're going to have to go to Mike's Auto Body. There's a shameless plug for James. He's not, is he here? He's in Vegas. talking about financial guardrails today, and I just mentioned the guy that's in Vegas instead of church on Sunday. Please make sure that he hears this podcast. So guardrails are designed to minimize damage. Oh, that one got me. That one got me. So yeah, you might have to go to Mike's Auto Body and see James. Uh, he'll be back from Vegas on tonight. So you can go as early as tomorrow to Mike's Auto Body, and uh, he'll get you fixed up. But you may, you may have to go to Mike's Auto Body, but you won't have to go to the hospital. So why are we talking about guardrails? Obviously, guardrails is a metaphor, right? Because highways aren't the only place where we could use some guardrails. And we've talked about this. All of us in our lives, some of our biggest regrets, greatest regrets, could have or maybe would have been avoided with some guardrails 
some financial guardrails, some moral guardrails, some professional guardrails, some financial guardrails. And so and then we, we talked about this a little bit over the past couple of weeks as well, that guardrails are actually personal, that I am deciding for myself where my boundaries are and where my limits are. And I'm not trying to push my boundaries on you. I'm navigating my own path. And so I'm dealing with my own conscience. And so then guardrails actually become a standard of behavior that become a matter of conscience. It's a standard of my behavior that deals with my conscience. It's for me professionally, for my circle, my associates, my marriage, my finances, these kinds of things. I have some places that I don't want to end up in life. And so I am going to set up some guardrails for myself Um, So that when I begin to drift towards those dangerous uh, areas, there's something that will light up my conscience. So guardrails are a trigger to kind of give us to get us to pump the brakes before we land in the danger zone. All right. Um, But today we're going to take a look at something that Jesus said about finances and money. And I just want to say this out the outset that if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, you kind of get a pass today. Like you showed up to church and you don't have to listen to anything Jesus says because you're not sure that you're going to follow him yet. And and we understand that and we we get that. But I think it's a good time for you to kind of tune in and listen to something that Jesus had to say. Because if we would all, like whether you're a Jesus follower or not, if our society, if our culture, if our city, if we could grab on to this idea that we're going to talk about today, I'm telling you, we could change the world. I believe it, and Carl believes it, and I think James believes it too, but he's in Vegas today, and so we can't ask. If we could grab onto this, we could absolutely change the world, And so, and, but if you are a Jesus follower, look, it's too late. You just got to do what Jesus tells you to do. So, you know, we're, we're looking in the New Testament, the new part of the Bible, the Jesus part of the Bible, and what, you know, it has to say about money and finances, and really, what Jesus has to say about money and finances is one of the most disregarded topics in all of the Bible, and, and sadly, even when it comes to a lot of Christians and Jesus followers, but what he had to say is so important, it's so important, but listen to me, as you hear this, as you look at this principle, and we've talked about this before at City Grace, this probably isn't going to su- surprise most of you, but it, it, as you hear this, it's going to be something that's going to be hard for you to take in. It's going to be something that we're all a little bit resistant to at first. We all want to give a little bit of pushback on it. Even those who follow Jesus, this is just something that's really, really touchy. And then if you're not a Jesus follower, again, of course, this is one of those sensitive you know, subjects. And there's a couple of really sensitive subjects that culture kind of talks about when it comes to Christianity and the church. And this is what a lot of people think about the church, that the church is against sex and the church just wants my money, right? That's what a lot of people, that's why a lot of people don't go to church because the church is against sex and the church just wants my money. So we're on to one of the big two uh, today and, and it's a big deal that we talk about this because of this idea that the church just wants your money. But as you look at the teachings of Jesus, this is so so, so important that Jesus actually does not want, want your money. He doesn't want your money to come to him. Jesus never took an offering, but rather Jesus wants something for you as it relates to money or finances. And so any church that's trying to live out the teachings of Jesus, we should also want something for you, not want something, something from you as it relates to you and your money. And I'm the lead pastor here, so I should know uh, more than anybody else, you know, the, the mission of our church at City Grace is definitely going to be easier to accomplish if we all get on board with this idea that Jesus gives about money and finances. But I too, I want to make it clear, we don't want your money. Hello. Now we have programs and kids programs and youth programs and all kinds of good programs that, that we need money for. There are things in the works to reach service members and their families, things in the works to reach young families and preschool parents and those kinds of things. All of these little mission components are going to require somebody's money, 
right? But I want to make it very clear at the outset that this is how I see it. This is how our leadership sees it, our leadership team sees it, that we don't want something from you. We are not here to take an offering. I'm not going to be asking for money at the end of this lesson. We don't want something from you. We want something for you as it relates to money and trust and your walk with God following Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about financial guardrails. And when we're talking about financial guardrails today, look, I'm not here to tell you, you know, a, a get out of debt program. We have stuff like that. We have Financial Peace University that we do every year. Um, we, I'm not here to talk to you about how to avoid bankruptcy or anything like that. I'm actually going on a level deeper than all of that. And in fact, the way that Jesus talks about it, this is so, excuse me, this is so interesting to me because actually the way that Jesus talks about money and, and finances, you could be debt free. You can have a ton of money in the bank and still be in a ditch financially according to Jesus' definition of what it looks like to be healthy or sick financially or to be in a safe place or a dangerous place financially. You can have all your cars paid off. You can have your house paid off and have your kids' college tuition already stored up and a good 401k going or set aside. And according to Jesus, you could be heading for a sharp cliff and, in fact, about to go over the edge financially. Now, it's kind of surprising, isn't it? That's something that maybe gets our attention. Because when Jesus talks about things, and this is why I love following Jesus and why I think everybody should follow Jesus, because he's so brilliant. He has a way of, of getting to the heart of the issue. He has a way of talking about things that just really kind of get in there, and they kind of bother us, and they, they, they kind of you know, get us to, to expose our motives and really look at what's going on in our lives. And that's why I think this is so compelling. And that's why I think you should lean in today to what Jesus had to say about money, even if you don't yet know if you are a Jesus follower. So what was it about money that Jesus said? What was it about finances and you and, and you and your finances that is so absolutely, absolutely intriguing? Well, it turns out there was a guy named Matthew who was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he was actually in the crowd and heard Jesus give a speech that we're about to read a little bit of today. And so let's let Matthew tell us what Jesus said about money. And here's what Matthew said that Jesus said about money. No one can serve two masters. To which we say, well, I must not be one of the no ones that Jesus is talking about because I don't serve any masters, right? It's 2,000 years later, and I am my own man. I am my own woman. But Jesus is smart. Like, he's got you. He knows what you're thinking. He knew 2,000 years ago already where you be. He's teasing you in, all right? So just hang on. He says, no one can serve two masters. Look, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And we read it and we think, well, that's just like a tricky way to say the same thing twice. Like, you know, just what's going on there? And maybe he's still not talking to me. It seems repetitive and maybe a little bit confusing. And so I want to clear this up a little. And we got to do this every once in a while when we come to language when we're reading something from 2,000 years ago. But look, this word masters here, this is so, so important for us to look at. This word master, when it was written in the original Greek, the Greek word is kyrios. And it's talking about one who is in charge of something or someone else by virtue of possession or ownership. Somebody say possession. Somebody say ownership. So when we think of masters, we think of, you know, bosses possibly, right? We think of employers and, and maybe even with our kind of American history, right? Most recently, we think of race-based slavery and, and that kind of thing. There's all kinds of different emotions and feelings and, and ideas that come to mind when we hear this word master. And so I really want to make sure that we kind of pull ourselves out of our context and what's going on in our life and our recent history and make sure that we don't miss 
what Jesus is trying to talk about when he's talking about you can't serve two masters. You can't be possessed by two different things that want to control you. You cannot be controlled by two opposing forces. You can only have one thing driving. You can have only one thing that is in control of yourself. This is his point. You can only be the possession of one thing, of one entity. And of course, that to us, that kind of makes sense. We get that, right? Can't have more than one head. Anything that has more than one head is a monster, right? We get the logic of that. It seems, you know, maybe irrelevant still, but we understand that. And we still think, well, yeah, I get it, but nobody owns me. Nobody possesses me. Nobody controls me, Jesus. And he's so smart. He's so smart. And he's ready. And he says, nobody can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and, and we're ready. We know the answer, right? You can't serve both God and the devil. That's what he's going to say next, right? No. Somebody in here read their Bible before, right? He doesn't say you cannot serve both God and the devil. Why? Because Jesus is smart. And he's brilliant, and he's Jesus, so Jesus is always right. Nobody can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, that's an interesting fill-in-the-blank right there, isn't it? You cannot serve both God and wealth. This Greek word for money here that we have translated, it could also mean stuff. It could mean your possessions. In other words, you cannot serve both God and possessions that end up possessing you. And this is so fascinating because he's going to take us on a little journey and kind of emphasize this point. But for Jesus, the primary issue when it comes to money isn't money. The primary issue for Jesus when it comes to money is mastery. It's control. It's ownership. It's possession. And who possesses who? And what Jesus is saying with all of this, he's kind of asking us a question. Do we have money or does money have us? Do we own money or does money own us? Do we possess and use money or is the possessing of money really using us and driving us and controlling the direction and the behaviors of our life? And the thing that Jesus sets forth as the chief competitor to God when it comes to your heart The chief competitor to God when it comes to my heart is money and what money promises. That's a big deal. And if Jesus says that you can't serve both God and money, I think we should maybe lean in and figure out why Jesus said this. But here's the thing about money and what money promises. That if you never have financial guardrails, you will never, you know, you may never declare bankruptcy You may never end up with a ton of consumer debt. You may have two million bucks in the bank and be the one that they ask to teach a class on how to manage your money or how to invest your money and that kind of thing. But with Jesus, if you don't have some kind of guardrail when it comes to the idea of mastery and possession and control as it relates to money, you are still in danger of driving off a cliff and your finances making a ruin of your life. Huh. Turn to somebody close and say, huh, huh, huh. Now, this danger with money takes two, two forms. There's this double danger of either consuming or hoarding your money. The desire to consume, consume, consume. The desire to upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. The, 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 or it's the other side, right? It's fear. I don't know if I'll be able to consume, and so I'm going to save and save and save. And what if I never have enough? What if I never have enough? What if I never have enough? But the root cause 
for both of these things, either consuming or hoarding, is a word that we kind of push back against. And it's this word that a lot of times we can see in other people, but we can almost never see in ourselves. And it's this idea of greed. Greed. And here's the thing about greed. We've talked about this before. This isn't a dictionary definition, but this is an incredibly wise decision. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. The assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed isn't a foggy mystery. Greed doesn't just live with Scrooge McDuck and his mountains of gold coins in the bottom of his basement. Hello, that's not greed. That's a cartoon. Greed is simply the assumption that if it shows up in my hands, it's for me. If it showed up as a dollar amount on my paycheck, then it must be for me. If it came into my checking account, it must be for me. See, I'm starting to feel the pushback already, right? We're getting there. If it shows up in my 401k, well, then it's for me. If it's part of my bonus, well, it's my bonus. And greed has to do with the assumption that everything that comes to me is for my consumption. And occasionally, when I feel really generous, or maybe I got an extra big bonus, or maybe I see a sad picture of somebody that's hungry or an animal that's dying, and Sarah McLaughlin is singing in the background, on the wings of the angel. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, think about it. When I see that, I have all of my money and all of my possessions, and maybe, perhaps, if I am feeling generous, I'm going to take out of what is mine and give it to someone else, and I really hope that God is watching while I do this. And I hope that Pastor Jared sees some kind of giving report, I don't, by the way, that he can put in a good word with the guy upstairs for me because I was just very generous right now, giving something that was mine. But it shows up in the same way. It's all about consumption, assuming that it's for me if it came to me. It's either consuming now and you're a chronic spender, or it's about worrying about being able to spend later, which makes you a hoarder. It's two sides of the same uh, same coin. It's consume now or consume later. But it's all about our consumption. It's about me now or me later. And whether you're a Jesus follower or not, listen, when you live this way, When you live this way, you are living as if there is no God. That's a heavy thing. When you live this way, that everything that comes to you is for you, you are living as if there is no God. You're living as if there is nothing beyond this life, that this life is all there is. So eat, drink, And be merry, because tomorrow we die. And who cares what they say about you at your funeral? You're sure they'll come up with something nice, because they said that about them, and we know. Yeah, y'all have been to some of the same funerals I was at, huh? And if other people think you're greedy, who cares, right? If other people talk about you after they're gone, who cares? Just a little while later, they'll be gone too. So eat, drink. Be merry, because tomorrow we die. There's nothing more to this life than this life. And if that is what you believe, then by all means, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. But if there is something in you, 
If there was a pushback, a hesitation on that, and, and you know, you just have this feeling, and maybe it's grown into a full-on belief by now that there is more to this life than just this life, that there is actually something beyond this life, then you have to pay attention to how you are living because living by personal consumption is living as if there is no God. It's about us now or it's about us later. And then, this is so interesting. This happens all the time. This is something that happens to all of us. It has probably happened to all of us. This is so interesting. We are really interested. Turn to somebody close to you and tell them, I'm really interesting. Listen up. Listen, here's what happens. We buy too much house. Can I hear an oh, no? We buy too many cars. We buy a newer car. We upgrade a phone. We get a credit card offer in the mail. And then we get another one in the mail. Then we get another one in the mail. Then you get another one in the mail. How many credit cards are we allowed to have? Why is there no legal limit to that, right? It's crazy. All of the things that come, right? And, And we cause financial trouble, don't we? Or, or, think about it. Maybe you didn't cause your financial troubles. Maybe somebody laid you off. Maybe you had a partner and they took the money and ran or you just had an investment and and it went bad, but we are in financial trouble. We get into financial trouble and man, things get bad and we get worried. And when we get worried about our finances, what do we Christians do? We pray. Yes, we do. When we get into financial trouble, we pray. Some of us make small, silent prayers on our way to the bank. Some of us make big, showy, crying prayers. And, and, you know, what do I have to do to make sure that, God, I get your attention because this pain is real. I've got more month than money. Can I hear an amen and uh-huh? Can I hear something? And we are praying. Yes, we Christians really know how to pray when we're hungry. We do. We do. And here's what's so interesting. We get into financial trouble, and we pray. And when we pray, what we are doing is inviting God into our finances. That's what we're doing. We're telling God, God, this is my trouble over here, and I'd like you to meet my trouble. Trouble, this is God. God, this is trouble. And what I'm going to do at this point, God, is I'm going to go ahead and let you be the master of my money. I'm going to let you be the master of my miracle. I'm going to let you, because I'm so generous, I'm going to let you own this situation and this circumstance. I'm going to let you own the outcome of all this because I would never want to steal from your glory. To God be the glory, right? I'm in debt. Let me give that debt to God so God can be great. Be great in my finances after I've already made a wreck of them. No Anybody know what I'm talking about? One more time, can I hear an amen? God, I need a job. God, I need a break. God, we I think I might need another credit card, but no, that's not from God. You don't need another credit. God, I need something. I need a raise. God, I'm inviting you into this area of my life now because, God, I think I chose the wrong master. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the question that I think we need to wrestle with, Christians. This is the question that I think we need to wrestle with. Jesus followers, listen, if you would invite God into your finances after there's a problem, why wouldn't you invite him into your finances before there's a problem? That's a good question. Ask somebody next to you that question, please. 
Go ahead. I made space in my notes for this. You have to speak to ask a question. Come on, to ask a question. Ask the person that we're going to get all awkward up in here. You guys ready? Ask someone behind you, please. Think about it. If you'd ask God and invite God to be the master, then why won't you invite God to be the master now? Because you know that you're going to need him to be the master of your master card at some point. And God, I think I chose the wrong master. And so guardrails, guardrails need to be set up, not against some of the things that we think we should be worrying about, but actually against the idea of greed, the assumption of consumption, that if it came to me, it must be for me. And the way that we invite God before there's a tragedy, the way that we set ourselves up for success financially before we have a meltdown, and this works if you have a lot of money, this works if you have a little bit of money, it does not matter. Here is the main word that you have to remember. It is about priorities. Somebody say priorities. It's about what comes first. Because here's the thing when it comes to money. Most people live by this order right here. When you are mastered by your money, you live on what happens. You live first with everything that comes into your possession. You live first. And then if you have a little bit left over, or maybe if you have a plan at work, you know, that kind of thing, you'll save a little bit along the way. And then out of whatever's left over, whatever margin you have, or maybe even you don't have, whenever you feel compassionate or if there's a flood or an earthquake in Houston, again, good Lord, move out of Houston and New Orleans. Like when there's another one, then maybe I'll give a little something then out of something that I have left over. Notice this. It's me first, it's me second, and it's everybody else third. Me first, me second. And everybody else, including God's church thing, third. Think about this. And if you are living this way, then you are mastered by your money. You are possessed with the idea that you need more possessions. You are directed and under the control of something other than God because you're living as if there is no God and as if, as, as if there is nothing more to this life than this life. You're living as if God has no interest in what happens in your finances unless you get into trouble and bring it to his attention. This is the idea that is kind of lived out by this order and this priority list when it comes to money. But then Jesus comes along. And he's trying to change the way that we see things and trying to change the way that we behave and we act and we live things out. And, and he says, when you see the world the way that I do and when you see what God is up to the way that I do and you're going to flip this order upside down and the Jesus way to actually master your money is to give first, to save second, and then to live and designate and determine your lifestyle based on what is left over. In other words, if I can put it in Sunday school language first, it's put others first and put yourself after. Anybody ever heard that from Jesus? Put others first and put yourself after. That's hard to say. Come on. Here we go. We're in Sunday school this morning. Ready? Put others first. Put yourself second. After. 
third. Se third. After. All right. I didn't think that through before I had us do it. Already? Well, all right. One more time. Put yourself. Third. And the second thing you do is put others first. That's. My voice has been hurting me all morning. If you guys would please have compassion. I think I need to go to Vegas. But anyway. Listen, putting others first and putting yourself second. It's first and second. The third thing kind of goes away because save and live. Go. To, I'm just going to move on. This is a formula for freedom. This is the formula for freedom. Let me read from my notes. From the freedom, from the belief that life equals stuff. This is where I wanted to go with this. This is what I wanted to do. Everybody here? Okay, everybody laugh. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Ready? This formula is a formula for freedom. <laughs> Appreciate your enthusiasm. This is a formula for freedom. It's a freedom from the belief that life, the quality of your life, is determined by your stuff. Anybody ever heard that saying before? He who dies with the most toy wins. Toys wins. Anybody ever heard? I can't even talk. I can't. I'm having a hard time. Jesus. He who dies with the most toys wins. I see that on bumper stickers of trucks that are usually lifted up very high with really big wheels and used to have rifles in the back, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And no matter how much stuff you get, you're always going to be discontent. Isn't that the truth? Come on, that's why you got a newer car. I mean, you know, it's kind of making some noise, but you could have still driven it. You know that. But your neighbor got a new car, right? Someone's always going to have better stuff, newer stuff, shinier stuff, faster stuff, stuff with more bedrooms, stuff with a swimming pool, right? And all of that revolves around an appetite. It's an appetite, which means that you can make it stop growling for a minute, but pretty soon that hunger is going to come back, isn't it? And if you eat Chinese food, it's going to come back even sooner. Hello. I don't know why. I don't understand. But you're living by an appetite. And most of us, listen, here's the thing. Most of us are going to run out of time before we run out of stuff. You're going to pass off the scene, and there's still going to be stuff left over. And life is not about stuff. Life is about time and who you get to spend that time with. This formula is a freedom from the kind of life that only involves God in emergencies. My God, you stay over there in the corner, and when I need you, I'm going to come get you so you can fix my finances. No, 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 no. You need to bring God into the big middle of your money. Hello, not hanging out in the financial ER, not chasing your financial ambulance down the street. No, you need God right in the middle of your money. And for the rest of our lives, money and what money promises is going to be the chief competitor for your heart to your God. And your heavenly Father doesn't want money to win. Your heavenly Father does not want possessions to possess you. And so he has some things to say to you and to say to me so that money won't take priority over our time, so that chasing money won't take priority over our kids or over our health, so, over our health, so that we won't end up as slaves 
to consumption. Listen, this has nothing to do with the church getting your money, which is why we're not taking an offering today. This has nothing to do with me asking for an offerings. We don't even ask for offerings around here. We have the weirdest giving model of any church. Like it's so strange, and people talk about it, but we talk about giving once or twice a year, and then we're going to grow as a church. We're going to expand as a church as God wrestles with everybody here with your heart when it comes to your giving and your finances. I'm not going to take money from you. Hello. I have a pistol, but I'm not going to use it to get your wallet. I'm going to use it when my daughter starts thinking that she needs to date. That's when I'll pull out my pistol. And listen, listen to me, listen to me. This is, this is the thing too. Like God doesn't want you to not have stuff. God is fine with you having stuff. God just doesn't want your stuff to have you. That's why Jesus never took an offering. This isn't about God wanting your money. If God wanted your money, he'd zap you right now and there'd be a pile of ash and your wallet miraculously still sitting there on the chair. God doesn't need this so, So give, give first, and then save second, and then live on what is left over. Jesus said, and no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then a few minutes later in the same sermon, he kind of, you know, builds off this idea, and he says, so do not worry. All of you Jesus followers, all of the Christians, all of the ones that are going to be part of my movement, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Or 2,000 years later when we're living in the land of refrigeration, we might say, do not worry what shall I drive. Do not worry what shall I talketh upon. Do not worry what school districteth shall my children learn within Jesus says, look, everybody, normal people, the people that don't believe in God, don't trust in God, don't follow me, they worry about things and these things. And if you worry about things, these things, you're going to do what they do, and you're going to close up your fist really tight because you're worried about not having enough money to consume the things around you with. And Jesus says, look, want to know who, you know who worries about these things? The pagans run after all these things. This word pagan, like, you know, for us, it kind of has this really derogatory and, you know, like an insulting connotation. In the first century, this is talking about people that believed in other gods, the mythological gods, right? And, and, and those gods, you know, they didn't care about people. When you read the mythology and you read the stories, those gods did not care about the people that, quote unquote, served them. Those gods toyed with people. Those gods used people, played with people, and the pagans would have to bribe their gods in order to try and get good things from their gods. And listen, that idea of giving to our God has crept into the church a little bit. Like you need to sow a financial seed so that you can receive a financial blessing. That's not what it's about. Hello. Now listen, I understand that there are a lot of people here that might have, you know, different people on different, me, I'm trying really hard not to offend somebody. If there is somebody with a very large platform who flies in a jet and says that he needs you to pay for his gas, don't. Don't. If there is somebody selling authentic nails from the cross of Jesus, at most only like three or four people can get in on that. Like the rest of you, stop. Stop. 
If you want to pay for a hanky that's been anointed by oil and, and, and done, like, we'll do it for free. Don't give an offering to them. Like, go feed somebody and then come here. We'll give you a hanky for free. I'll even go buy it for you. Hello. Everybody's going to ask me for a hanky next week, aren't you? I better go buy some hankies. Listen, this kind of thinking creeps into Christianity, and it's just not the case. Jesus is saying, you don't serve that kind of God. That is not your heavenly Father. And if your life pursuits are like the pagans' life pursuits, that is evidence that maybe you're thinking your God is like the pagan gods. But that's not the way it is. When you live a life completely surrendered to a heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you and actually came into your story to give to you, then your thinking isn't like other people's thinking. A life trusting in a heavenly father is characterized by different life pursuits. For the pagans run after all these things. But your heavenly father, he already knows. He already knows what you need. Now listen, Christians, Christians, do you really believe this? Do you really, really, really believe this? That your heavenly, what is it again? That your heavenly Father already knows what you need. When you really believe that, the moment that that goes from your head and gets into your heart, your hands can open up wide because you've just let go of worry. Because you know that it's not really you that's in control at all. That it's a heavenly Father who loves you more than you could imagine who planned you before you ever breathed your first breath, who has promised to be with you ever and always. That's when you truly begin to trust what kind of father Jesus said that we could think of him as, a heavenly, heavenly father. And so Jesus is saying, hey, let's, let's flip the script. Let's change the story and change the world. And here's how you do it. Here's how you involve God in your finances. Here's how you put God in the big middle of your money. Here's how you stop chasing appetites and instead live like God intended. But seek first. Now again, notice this. Hello, those of us that have been in church a long time, a lot of times we read this and we think seek only. Can't have nice cars. Christians shouldn't be rich. Christians shouldn't be wealthy. That's not what he said. He said, what's your priority? Seek first. It's about order. It's about rank. It's about what comes first. When you get that paycheck, what is your first consideration? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And this is, so, this is a big deal because we see this word kingdom. We think, well, I don't even live in a kingdom. I don't even know what that's about. Look, this word kingdom you could really use for like a movement. Seek first His movement. Seek first his upsetting of, of the way that things are being done now that has so many people in oppression and poverty. Seek first his kingdom, a way of living like you would live if God was a literal, literal king on the earth. And he is, but that's a whole other Bible study. I don't want to get into it right now. Listen, he's an other's first kind of king. And we wonder sometimes, and people wonder sometimes, like you talk about the kingdom of God. God is not the kingdom, or he's not the king of any kingdom on the earth. And that's because we're thinking of kingdoms like normal people think of kingdoms, where somebody comes with a force and power and military might, and they start from the outside and try and cram their ideas in. 
They start outside in type of kingdom. And God has a completely reversed. His kingdom is an inside out kind of kingdom. He wants to get into your heart. And maybe if you don't see where God is ruling anywhere on the earth, maybe that's because he hasn't started inside you to work on the outside of you. He's an other's first kind of king with an other's first kind of kingdom. That's what his kingdom is. Doing what's best for others is what's best. Doing what's right for others is what's right. His kingdom and his righteousness. His way of seeing things done right. There you are, kingdom and righteousness. And Jesus is saying, you need to know this, that if you're going to follow me into an others first kind of kingdom, then it is going to take you putting others first in every single area of your life, including including your money and your finances. It's all about others first. There's this hugely important chapter in Mark chapter 10 uh, in, the, in the New Testament. This, this chapter is actually, I mean, just it's pivotal in the way that it sets some things up and the way that it talks about some things. And, and, and Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem, um, and it's actually a dark time. And, and Mark, most people think that Mark kind of got his account from Peter, who was there. He's part of the, the crowd, part of the, the closest followers of Jesus. And and Jesus and his closest 12 guys are, are heading to Jerusalem, and it's not a good time to head to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of like the epicenter of the, the crowds and the people, but Je- Jerusalem is also the epicenter of people that are trying to kill Jesus at that time. And the disciples, his closest followers, are a little bit nervous about going to Jerusalem, but they're thinking, you know, maybe this is the time when Jesus is going to set himself up as the king of the, this kingdom, right? But again, they're thinking outside in. They're thinking fighting and war and having swords and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus knows they just don't get it. They're, they're not getting it yet. They're still thinking outside in kind of kingdom. And they kind of believe in him, though, you know, like even with the idea of an outside in kingdom, like, man, you know, Jesus could still do it. We're not very much here, you know. He's just one guy, he's just a carpenter, you know, but, but he's Jesus. He's Jesus. And we did see him cleanse the temple that time. You know, he made a whip and, and went and drove people out, and he was able to kind of overcome the opposition there. He did, like, calm a storm, right? We've seen him angry before. Maybe this is his time after all when Jesus is going to be the guy. He is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to be president. So who gets to be vice president? And that's what they're thinking. And they're walking to Jerusalem, and that's what they're talking about. Who's going to be second place in the kingdom? Who's going to be third place in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus hears them talking and arguing about this. And he, you, you almost feel frustration in Jesus' voice as he kind of sets this thing out in Mark chapter 10. And he, kind of, he gathers them around. He's like, okay, guys, come here. Teaching moment. Let me explain it to you guys. I got to explain it to you guys again. I'd hoped you'd get it by now, but obviously not. Guys, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms that you're thinking of. And you know this. In fact, You don't even like the kingdoms that you are thinking of. Because at that time, Israel was ruled by Rome. Rome had an outside-in kind of kingdom. Rome and Roman soldiers had their boots on the the Israelites' necks, the Jewish people's necks at that time. They were oppressed, and they forced taxes on them and did all of these things. And Jesus is saying, guys, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms that you know. And he appeals to them. I mean, they've had fathers and uncles and cousins who have been brutally killed in wars and battles and skirmishes by the Romans. They hate the Romans, and he, he kind of appeals to what they've lived and appeals to what they know and appeals to their pain and their tragedy. And he tells them in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They kind of abuse their power. 
They're the top guys, and they take from the small guys. They take from the little guys, right? And their high officials exercise authority over them. They make them jump. When they say jump, they make them jump through all these hoops. You know, you guys know that the guys at the top of the system use the system to keep themselves at the top. And they use people, and they take from the people. And Jesus is saying, you guys know how that turns out. That's, that, that's how everything works in the typical kind of kingdom. And the guy's like, well, yeah, we know that. We get that. That's why we're asking who's going to be number two, number three. Like, we know the higher you are in the food chain, the more food you eat. So we want to know who's going to be second, who's going to be third. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 guys, you don't understand. Not so with you. You want to follow me to Jerusalem? You want to be part of my kingdom? It's not that way. Not so with you. You want to be part of my kind of kingdom? You want to be part of being a kind of ruler that I am and that I am going to be? You want to change things from the status quo? You want to make a better world? You want to make the kind of world that will exist when God is king over everything? Listen, not so with you. But instead, listen, guys, whoever wants to become great, you you guys want to be great? Yeah, we want to be great. Jesus knows this. He's not against you wanting to be great. He knows that that's wired into you. We all desire greatness and big things and doing big things. He doesn't mind you wanting to be great. He just wants to know what's your definition of great. So instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Wait a minute. That means that I put others first and I put myself last. Others first, myself last. Whoever wants to become great amongst you, among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Must be slave of all. You want to be great in my kingdom? You want to be great in my world? You want to be great in my economy? You have to serve everyone else. You want to be first place in the human race? You've got to be the slave of everyone else. Intentionally make yourself come last. In Jesus' kingdom, if you want to rise high, you have to stoop low. You have to bend low and serve everyone else. And then he goes on. He's not even done. Guys, look, I'm going to give you the ultimate example of this. For even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to... I came to serve you, and I came to give to you. You want to know what my first order of business is? You want to know what my priority list looks like? You want to know what I put first and everything else comes after? I am here to give because my kingdom is an other's first kingdom. And that's why we're going to Jerusalem. And that's why I'm headed to a cross because I'm about to do for the whole world what I'm going to then turn and ask the whole world to do for each City Grace, this idea, this changed the world before. This can change our world again. Selflessness will solve everything. Selflessness will solve everything. Hello. Selflessness will solve everything. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom that we've been called to. But seek first His kingdom. And His righteousness and all of the other things that we get so worried about, 
All of the other things that we run after and we pursue, we put on our Christmas list and all of that kind of stuff. It's not that you don't need those things. It's not though, as though you shouldn't worry about those things or care about those things. It's not like he's asking you to live foolishly and say, I'm so holy, I'm giving all my paycheck to God. Don't do that. Please don't do that. I don't want to come along three months later and have to pay your car payment for you. And I, I can't. I won't. Sorry. Just ask Carl. He might. But I won't. There are limits to my other's first. No, I'm just kidding. I shouldn't have said that. That's not right. I've said two really bad things and then about 50 kind of marginal things today. I'm sorry about that. But listen, it's about putting others first. And by putting others first, you put God first. It's about putting others first. And when you put others first, you put God first. It's about priority. It's about priority. It's about demonstrating who you are really trusting. It's about demonstrating who really is in control. And once you come to the point where you give over that control, relax. Because God has got you. And what kind of God is he? He's a heavenly father. He's a loving father who finds us broken and empty and wasted on our own. And he gives and he gives and he forgives and he forgives, and he loves, and he picks us up, and he carries. He does all of these things because that's just who he is. That's who your God is. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.